0: Will you tell me? Voulez-vous me dire?
1: I thank you.
0: Je vous remercie.
1: When we think of translation, we typically imagine translating a work from one language to another. However, today's guest, poet Paul Legault, will challenge this notion of traditional translation. Paul is a writer-in-residence at Washington University in St. Louis, and co-founder of the small press, Telephone Books. In one of his most recent publications, The Emily Dickinson Reader, published by McSweeney's Press, Paul wrote an English-to-English translation for all of Dickinson's nearly 1,800 poems. But what does this mean? How can one translate a work without changing the language of origin? And what does this mean for historical work, like Dickinson's poems, if they can be retranslated in the modern day? I'm your host, Rebecca King, and this is Hold That Thought. You're listening, listening to Hold That Thought. From Arts and Sciences at Washington University
0: in St. Louis. I mean, it started definitely as a joke, and it still is a joke, but I think because of the fact that I ended up translating every single one of her poems, it became a very serious joke.
1: <laughs> While studying at the University of Virginia, Paul took a class on Emily Dickinson and Walt Whitman. He and his classmates read all of the poet's works, including personal correspondence and journal entries. and. Paul noticed that this had an effect on how he and his fellow classmates approached the poetry.
0: People would talk about what the poems meant in this specific way where they were trying to pin it to the biography. So we'd read this letter in which she was sad about her cousin dying. So then they'd read a poem and they'd summarize it that She's sad that her cousin died, that's what this poem means. So you have these interpretations that are clearly not as eloquent as the original poem, but I started to write them in the margins of my book. At first, kind of making fun of this this idea that you could summarize it as like, oh, I have a huge crush on my sister-in-law, so I'm writing this poem about a bee, or I really want to have sex right now, because um, those are the kinds of interpretations that would come up. But eventually, as I started doing that more and more, I. I started to appreciate how that allowed everyone a connection to her as a human, and these ideas that she also has FOMO, or she also experiences YOLO, or that there's like these parallels in contemporary life that are kind of drawl and not like high-minded, but that Dickinson was going through all these thoughts and has thought essentially everything before I did. and. I found it kind of exciting to then come up with a literal meaning for each one. And it also is a very kind of performative act. And it, it let me talk about her body of work, which is something I really love, to people who don't necessarily like it at first. Because there, there are these walls that get put up by her, and they're intricate and beautiful. And I really appreciate them. But I also like the meaning underneath. So it started as this joke kind of making fun of how this interpretation is a failure or a uh, a version of the original that is that just can't compete, but eventually I saw them just kind of extensions of the same thing.
1: When attempting this sort of translation, what was the process like? The first step, Paul says, is to get beyond the composition 101 thought that poems are like riddles.
0: I had read all of them before, so I was like rereading them, but they still always eluded me. Sometimes the thing would become clear to me, like. I think one of the poems that many people are first introduced to with Emily Dickinson is A Narrow Fellow in the Grass. And I remember being particularly frustrated with the idea, without even articulating in high school, that all these poems are just riddles, that if you figure out what the hell she's talking about, you get the prize or like you're done reading. And that A Narrow Fellow in the Grass is a snake. Once you know it's a snake, there's no reason to read the poem, which is not the case. So when I came to that poem, I kind of knew the answer to the riddle. In some cases, I had already heard interpretations that stuck with me. But in other cases, these poems just were impossible to get into a normalized English. They resisted it so much. And I remember my life had stood a loaded gun being one of the poems that I just couldn't summarize. Sometimes I would feel like I was just doing this disservice to it and sometimes enjoy it, kind of pranking Emily Dickinson. But in that case, I actually just pointed to Susan Howe's book, My Emily Dickinson, because she reads that poem so thoroughly and obsessively and intimately and not not just academically. It's a really beautiful rereading of Dickinson, and I settled on just pointing in that direction. So in some cases, just, I don't know. Sometimes I would just put down the book and be like, well, I don't, I don't know. But go check out this poem. It's really good. Usually the ones that confounded me were the best.
1: Knowing his approach... How many poems a day could Paul translate?
0: Mostly I could do 10 to 15 a day. I was working a 9-to-5 job at the Academy of American Poets, which was a very lucky position to be in after graduating with an MFA in poetry to find this bubble where poetry exists and everyone around me was a poet. I was just very lucky to have that kind of environment such that when I took lunch breaks and took my Emily Dickinson with me, it was such a normal thing to do among us poets working at the office. So I would do that and it just seemed very normal to just go get lunch and translate 15 Emily Dickinson poems. It was a way of keeping my sanity in the setting where you're administering the art. Sometimes you can kind of drift away from it, but it was useful for me to have this touchstone to go back to.
1: As he reread Emily Dickinson's poems each day at lunch, he says working on his translations, or writing, became a way of reading and interacting with this text that he loved.
0: Writing as a form of reading, I find, is a really exciting proposition these days. I think there are a lot of complaints that get tossed around in the field of People aren't reading enough, they just want to be writing, but I think the the two are so intricately connected. So for me, this process of reading slash writing was my favorite way of enjoying Dickinson, and then it did create this kind of byproduct.
1: (laughs) So now we get back to the essential question of working from a source text, fidelity. Given how much Paul loves Emily Dickinson's original poems, did he struggle with how much or how far to break away from these?
0: Especially when you're translating from a foreign language, it gets much more murky there. But honestly, with a public domain work, a person who is long dead, it's me making up her voice of approval or disapproval. Emily Dickinson can't actually weigh in. She actually wanted all of her writing to have been burned at her death. So... In some ways, the first transgressor of her wishes was her family, who took all her poems and presented them to the world. Thank God, I I love them. They're important in so many ways to American poetry to American history. But it was like an act of transgression just to publish her work. I translated one of her poems as, all published poets are whores. Because she really adamantly despised the idea of it being more than just a private language written on various letters and papers for herself and her friends which is a beautiful intimate way of understanding poetry there is a, this history of taking this work that maybe you shouldn't have and running with it so i felt invited by that that said i did try to spend enough time with each poem such that people would understand what i was talking about where i was getting that from so that i wasn't just making things up entirely i was reinterpreting them so i tried to be consistent with my own approach but in terms of keeping the original the original that's the original's job it still is there and i felt like i couldn't touch that i felt like there's no way i could injure it
1: Still, Paul found that some of Emily Dickinson's mega-fans questioned the validity of his project.
0: With Emily Dickinson, there's this huge fan club, and everyone in it is extreme. Like, there hasn't been a documentary made about Dickinson fans. I would parallel them to Trekkies. I just think, like, we're all very intense about our passion. So I did meet a lot of people who questioned the project, whether it was necessary, why do that when the original English is so perfect. And all I really had to say to them was that I too am a fan of the original and that's why I did it.
1: However, Paul finds that the issue of fidelity is fluid. What works for one project may not necessarily work for another. As he said earlier, this is especially true when translating a work from one language into another
0: But I think fidelity when it comes to rewriting or or translating work is a really interesting question and I'm always battling with it. I'm currently working on a translation of this Belgian poet, Sophie Podolsky, with my partner, Joseph Kaplan, because his French is better than mine and her work hasn't been translated into English ever before. So I feel like with a project like that, there's more responsibility to fidelity or to at least investigate what fidelity can be because it would be the first English version of it, I would feel bad if I was just like making it up. And people were just reading a poem by me when really I just want to point them in the direction of Sophie Podolsky, this kind of archetypal poet who was born in Belgium and died in France at the age of 21 in an insane asylum, having only written one book completely in her own handwriting. That project I feel like takes a different kind of time and process. But I'm interested in all these forms of translation.
1: Paul continues to investigate what translation and fidelity mean with his press, Telephone Books, where translation is taken to new lengths.
0: I co-founded Telephone Books with my friend Sharmila Cohen. When I first moved to Brooklyn, one of our friends said it should be called Telephone because we were talking about translation and the game of like whispering one thing from the next. So we just came up with this idea of getting multiple poets to translate the same work from a foreign language, and we would switch languages each issue. So you have this kind of developing of the same poem and these different versions over and over. And it was fun because the first issue was German and we got to know a lot of Berlin poets and translators in New York. And then the next issue was French. So we ended up going to Montreal for our book launch. And then we went on to do a Brazilian issue, Portuguese, and we met. Uh, one of my great heroes, Augusta de Campos. It started that way, and then we started wanting to do full length books. I think that's a, one of the grand traditions of literary journals that they start publishing books. And our first book was this anthology called The Sonnets Translating and Rewriting Shakespeare, which was published under Telephone Books. We were excited to have that name Telephone Books <laughs> and Nightboat Books. And essentially, we got 154 different poets to rewrite one of Shakespeare's sonnets. So it's this huge anthology, and the poems they wrote are all, all strange likenesses of Shakespeare. So yeah, that was our first book, and now we're putting together another one for the fall. It's a reprint of this Canadian poet, and he wrote this book called Translating, Translating Apollinaire, and it's his version of the first one we ever got published, written over and over and over again in these different ways. So he would write the same poem, except from memory, or the same poem, except he'd take all the letters of the poem and rearrange them alphabetically. But we're, we're really obsessed with this kind of translation of source texts, even if that source is English, and you're translating it back into English, it parallels like everything that's happening in art today, remixing, retelling, and I, I think it connects me back to my own writing. So I, I think that's one of the exciting parts about having a press is that these ideas come back to me, and then I can take them with me.
1: Many thanks to Paul Lego for meeting with me, and thanks to you for tuning in. As always, you can find Hold That Thought at holdthatthought.wustl.edu. That's holdthatthought.wustl.edu. Tune in next week for the next episode of Writing from History. When we consider personal history with memoirist Kathleen Finneran, and the ethics of telling the story of people who are still alive, people you actually know, and are maybe even related to you.